0: Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we check digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks.
1: So we're tackling a new topic for us with this drop, and it's all around data. So as chief digital officers, data and analytics are very, very key. And we have a guest today that I don't know that there's a better guest that we could possibly have on this topic specifically with data. And so I'll introduce Dale Sanders to you in just a second. We want to thank you for listening. This is Digital Voices. It's for all the chief digital officers across health and life sciences. And we've been going now, DJ Sid, what, for about six months now? And having a great time of it, and and great response to the uh, podcast. I think we're now in the top twenty-five percent uh, in podcasts. And so, DJ Sid, I have a quick question for you. You're early in your career. What's the what's the impact of analytics? Have you heard uh, a lot of your your clients talk about analytics and the importance of analytics?
0: Oh yes, definitely, Ed. Um, early in my career, you're right. So I haven't had the opportunity to talk to too many clients, but everyone so far, uh, it definitely comes up at least once. So I would say yeah. extremely important.
1: Yeah. And there's no one better than Dale Sanders. And and he's just a one in the commercial and it's a beer commercial, but you know, the, the more, uh, Interesting uh, people that you'd come across with. What is that, Dale? What is that beer commercial I'm thinking about?
0: I'm uh, out well. I think it's Dos Equis, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dos Equis.
1: <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, definitely could pull up uh, with Dale at a bar and have a great conversation. So, a little bit about Dale, but again, I'll stay high level. Dale, and let you introduce yourself. But there's some pretty interesting things about you that most people would not know. And that is, uh, well, one is we have a lot of connections regarding, we both went to school in Colorado, we both served in the military, yeah. uh, we both served at the advisory board, we both were CIOs, yeah. and, and, but you're much better looking than I am, so <laughs> you definitely, definitely win there, but you did some fascinating things in the Air Force that I think people would be really interested in, like, you actually were in control of, uh, you could have started uh, World War Three. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, or maybe the end of World War, you know, World War in some fashion. Yeah, yeah. I, so you, uh, yeah. yeah
1: tell us about it. You had, a little, you had some nuclear control role and responsibility.
0: Yeah, I, one of the jobs that I had was flying on a plane called the kneecap and also looking glass. So kneecap was the National Emergency Airborne Command Post and looking glass was the, the airborne command post for the strategic air command. And in a national emergency, there's a whole network of these aircraft that go airborne with the notion that if you're airborne, you're more survivable, right? The All the ground command centers are going to get wiped out. And so uh, reconstitution of the government, reconstitution of society, execution of nuclear weapons and all that sort of thing takes place from those aircraft. And um, in addition to being the airborne CIO for the looking Glass, which was the the anchor for all this worldwide network. Uh, the Looking Glass was the central anchor for that. I was the airborne CIO for that plane, but part of the responsibility in that position was serving as the key turn launch control officer for launching all 1,000 ICBMs at the time, as wow. well as sending out all the emergency action messages to the submarines mm-hmm. and things like that. So. You know, it was crazy. I mean, you're in your 20s, early 30s, getting to do all this stuff. It was just it was awesome. It was so fun.
1: Yeah, that was kind, of
0: kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. was, you know. A
1: little bit, a little bit of pressure, a little bit of pressure. Yeah. And then I think it's then that you discovered perhaps some of your technical capabilities, because you did some hacking went through a, a public payphone into the joint chief of staff, like communication systems or something.
0: Yeah, well, You know, I've always been, you know, on the verge of being in trouble most of my life. And uh, a lot of times in the plane, you know, you spend a lot of time just kind of flying around. You're not really actively doing anything, right? It's like we used to joke it's, you know, it's seven hours and 59 minutes of boredom and one minute of terror uh, on those missions. But so I would study a lot, right? I'm studying all these documents about, you know, all the communications networks and, um, you know, how to recover from outages. And, you know, there's just endless amounts of material to study. And so as I was studying those, I I was studying this system called the Joint Chiefs of Staff Learning Network, which is essentially the red phone that everybody talks about in movies and things like that, that's on the president's desk. It's not quite that in right. reality, but conceptually, that's what it is. And so um, this was a system that AT&T had designed. And I I thought that I had discovered a back door into it. I wasn't quite sure, but I thought I had. And so I had the dialing sequence um, stuck in my flight suit and I carried it around with me for a long time. And I'd been telling my friends and colleagues you know, on the plane, I said, I think I found a back door into the JSON. And they were going, oh, no, you, you no, know, there's no way. You can't do that. You can't do it. So uh, after one particularly long mission, we all got together at a local bar in Omaha yeah, which is where SAC headquarters was. And we had we were having beer, of course, and there was you know all sorts of things going on in the bar. And I got a few beers in me. And I told the mission commander that was there that night, I said, I think I I can do this. I can hack into the JSAN. So he bet me a pitcher of beer. And with all that liquid courage, I went over <laughs> and I dialed, you know, the sequence that I had in my flight suit. And uh, sure enough, it the last Switch kicked over and uh, a warble tone went off, and every unified and specified command center in the world for the U.S. came online, waiting for the president. (laughs) (laughs) And so I panicked. I I panicked. I, you know, I, I was like, oh, oh man, what have I done? And so a waitress went walking by, and I handed the phone to her. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Little did she know.
0: Yeah. And here's a a little more to that story that's interesting, though. Um, I could have gotten in a lot of trouble for that, but everyone also sort of recognized that, well, Sanders found something here. So it was actually kept kind of quiet. AT&T got into a lot of trouble, but I didn't. And NSA was responsible for the security on that network, and that established a bit of a reputation for me at NSA which later on in my career, I had the chance to work at NSA, which was a lot of fun.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a friendly hat, a friendly hat, right? It's better that we discover it than someone else. No, it's it's just fascinating. That's what I mean. Uh, Just, you know, Dale's a very, you're a very fascinating person and and thrilled to have you as a guest. So just one more uh, question by way of introduction, and then we'll kind of get into your story. But this is a question we ask everyone, and that's, what's your favorite music? So people always wanna know, hey. What does Dale like to
0: listen to in his downtime? Oh, man, my playlists are pretty bizarre. I, uh, my favorite music, gosh, it's everywhere. Maybe it's easier to say what I don't listen to. I don't listen to death metal. Uh, I don't much care for modern rap, although I can listen to some of the older rap. And uh, I'm not a big fan of modern country, but I can listen to just about anything other than that. And I, I love music. In fact, uh, uh, funny you should ask. Tomorrow I'm flying to uh, Denver for a Green Day concert.
1: Oh nice. Yeah. 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 I love I love Green Day. Uh, what, one of my psych songs a uh, long time ago, when I, you know, before I do certain sports, always had blast of a song in my ear and it was uh, When I Come Around. Yeah. By Green Day. It's one of right. my Great all-time. all time favorites. So I'm jealous. I'd love to see them in concert again. All right, so let's just keep going, Dale. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to share on the personal and professional side. Then we'll get into, you know, what you're doing today as the Chief Strategy Officer of Intelligent Medical Objects, or we might refer to it as IMO, and and just hear more about that. So uh, go ahead and, you know, whatever you want to share on the personal and professional side.
0: Well, let's see. On the personal side, um I think one of the main defining things in my life right now is I'm a late in life first time father. So we decided my wife and I decided we put off having kids until I was 54. And so at 61, I'm I'm now the father of a five year old and a seven year old and um, everything, you know, the all, all the cliches fit. Um, I, I never knew what love was until we had children. And I just infatuated with them and it, everything in life now is sort of a means to their ends. Right. All I want to be yeah. is a good father and a good husband. And, you know, I'm just fascinated by them and they're making they're helping me become a better person. So on a personal level, that's a big part of my life. Um, uh, you know. I don't know what else. What else can I share there? Uh, Yeah, well,
1: tell us. Yeah, Dale. Well, first, congratulations. Yeah. Being a dad, you know, we can say this from a men's point of view, uh, being a dad is like the greatest thing ever. So congratulations. And it's a very uh, critical role. That's for sure. And, 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 you know, I had uh, friends who were uh, children of parents who were a little bit older when they were born, and they actually got got more time with their parents because they were yeah. at a different stage in their career. Right. And so they got to spend more time with their parents and it, it all turned out really well. So yeah, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I n- may, may or may not have been planned that way, but, uh, there, there's uh, a lot of great benefits. So I I'm sure your, your great dad will, will always be
0: the, the, my joke is that I rolled for the sake of efficiency. I rolled being a father and grandfather into the same experience.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, so in terms of the professional side, let's just jump ahead and everyone knows about Health Catalyst. Like one of the great stories, I think, of the last 10, 15 years in terms of finding a a space, a gap where analytics was kind of new and the EHR vendors really were sort of slow, you know, they were busy on other parts of their product. And so something like Health Catalyst jumps out. So talk about your time at Health Catalyst and then, how that then brought you to imo
0: yeah the health catalyst story is a fascinating one you know um i have super high expectations of myself mostly and um even though it's a great story and it's still a great company the truth is i would be a lot better the second time around on a story like that than i was the first time uh you know, we we did really well in the market. We were early, you know, with the whole concept of analytics and a data platform and, you know, multiple downstream uses of data, everything from, you know, traditional reporting and analytics to artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and even workflow applications on top of the data platform, not just using it for analytics. Um, we raised a ton of money before we went public. We raised $540 million before we went public which was probably too much money, right? You become enamored with raising money instead of becoming profitable, um, and there's nothing like constraints to drive efficiency, right? Right. So uh, it was it was it was a it was super fun experience. I learned so much from it, and uh, very grateful for it. Um, I, so the interesting thing, you know, I, I got a pretty good exit from Health Catalyst. I had the opportunity to kind of float around after I stepped down in October of 2020 and decide what, you know, what do I want to do next? Um, And I had been a a customer of IMO, Intelligent Medical Objects, way back at Northwestern back in 2006. And uh, so they reached out to me saying, you know, would you like to do some strategic consulting for us? And it I never really thought about IMO prior to that. But What appealed to me about joining IMO was addressing our data quality problems in healthcare at the source of data production, instead of dealing with it downstream like we did in Health Catalyst, right? I mean, we spent a lot of time and money in the analytics space, trying to overcome data quality problems that we really had no control over solving the root cause was upstream in the way that we use EHRs and the way we collect data at the source of production. So IMO is, you know, it's basically in every EHR in the country. I think um, McKinsey said that we cover 95% of the beds in the U S market. We're in 17 countries. And so I, what I like about IMO is this unique position they have at the front end of data production. That has the potential to fix a lot of the data quality problems that we have in healthcare right now. So that's really what brought me to IMO was was addressing root cause problems. And you know, I'm sure you know, Ed, with your experience as a CIO, our data quality in healthcare is abysmal, especially yes. given the, you know the the criticality of our mission. So um, it's fun. I'm I'm having a blast. I'm really enjoying it. I love the executive team at IMO, and I love. You know unwrap, unwrapping the potential that imo has in the market too
1: yeah you mentioned dale that if you had a do-over with health catalyst and it probably in any role if you could have that experience and then come back yeah. and do it you know yeah. you learn a few things what are what are two or three things that you've learned along the way that that might be of interest to our audience of chief digital officers and some people that are, are earlier in their career but help you know, sort of up that go work another way up that ladder in terms of all things digital what what are two or three things that you've learned along the way that might be helpful.
0: Well, I tell you know I touched on one of them, and that was you know don't raise too much money if you're a, um, yeah. if you're a chief digital officer in the vendor space, uh, you know there's a lot of money floating around the market right now. And you can feel your, your ego becomes sort of satisfied uh, by all the attention you get for raising money. But it makes you inefficient. Yeah. And there's just nothing like constraints, right to force efficiency and tough decisions. And so we just raised way too much money, way too much money, you know, $540 million. I mean, if you compare that to yeah. Amazon, I think Amazon raised something like 90 million before they went public. Yeah. Um, so that was a big lesson learned the other was um you know architecture matters and early on um, health catalyst was not very scalable technically it was more of a professional services company and so when sequoia came along with the first round of funding that should have been an indication to the health catalyst culture that scalability of technology was going to be super important Uh, but we never really made that pause and said, holy crap, we better re-engineer this technology to scalability so that we meet the expectations of the investors. Um, so as a consequence of not doing that, we carried a lot of technical debt for many years. Well, when you're deploying a platform across the country and in foreign countries too, um, and it's got technical debt in it unwinding that from the market is a big problem yeah. so you know there's a tendency uh, in agile development there's a tendency in startups to say um let's go out and get market let's establish logos we can fix all these problems later i can tell you that is brutally hard to do yeah That's- so technical debt was a really big lesson learned um and then all sorts of lessons about how to organize autonomous product teams and, and move quickly, more leadership kind of things, right? I'm a big believer in creating autonomous teams and and that was a positive thing that I learned. Um, I created, depending on how you count them, somewhere around eight different product lines. And um, I purposely designed those teams to be self-contained so that they could move autonomously almost like you know separate little CEO companies and that's what enabled us to get from the technical debt that we were in to an IPO in three and a half years um, so that was a really good organizational leadership lesson that I learned that turned out to be pretty effective
1: yeah no those, those are three excellent points right there we can uh, finish the, 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 pod, the podcast and and go no those are those are really good learnings You know, in terms of data, Dale, where do you think we're headed as an industry? So I know that's kind of a big, broad question, but, you know, there's a lot of buzz around AI and ML and people are wondering, is it kind of like blockchain where there was this great big hope and then it sort of fizzled out a little bit, Uh, where, where, where would you say we're headed?
0: Well, I'd like to think that COVID taught us a lesson about how poor our data quality is. And and when I talk about data quality, I'm talking about completeness times validity, right? How complete is the data relative to the situation we're trying to understand? And is the data that we're collecting about that situation valid or not? And COVID just put a spotlight on what you know, people like you and I have known for years, which is our data quality is bad. And we're constantly churning around that data quality trying to make the best of it, so I hope as a country we establish a national healthcare data strategy. uh, purposely to improve the quality of data that we're producing right now. And if we don't do that, by the way, all this hype and excitement around AI and uh, machine learning are going to fall on their face again and we're going to go through another hype to boom cycle, you know there was a. there was a good article in Nature. I don't know if it's good, but it was a a damning article in Nature that came out a couple of months ago, of the 400 data science models that the authors evaluated, none of those were fit for clinical use. Mm. And then there was another report that came out a couple of weeks later, uh, out of the British Medical Journal that of the 200 models that they evaluated, none were fit for clinical use. So there's this very interesting thing going on with lots of investment money, lots of VC and private equity money pouring into healthcare with the belief that we have high quality data that can feed these AI and machine learning models. But it's, you know, the old cliche fits and that's garbage in garbage out. Right. So we've got to pause. So that's what's one cool thing about your audience, right? Is they can take the leadership role as chief data and digital officers. And they can purposely improve completeness and validity of data that we have. They can, you can lay out a strategic data acquisition and data quality roadmap. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they are there, and we don't, you don't have to name the organizations, but maybe the attributes of the organization. Are there, are there one or two organizations that come to mind that are getting it right? And if they are getting it right, you know, what are the sort of steps that they're doing? So from an audience perspective, you know, they might be thinking about, okay, uh, yeah, there are a lot of data quality issues, a lot of people spending a lot of money in the sector, and it's still not helping. So if I'm a leader, and I want to do my own thing, in my organization, what should I, how should I set things up? So are there are there some that are doing well? And if
0: so, what the attributes are? Uh, Good question, French. Are you talking about vendors or providers or just anybody? Uh, You can go anybody. Providers might be
1: interesting, but uh, maybe there's a vendor as well.
0: Yep. I love Ari Robachek at Providence, Dr. Ari He, I had the opportunity to work in and around Ari when I was in Chicago. He was at North Shore. My wife actually worked for him as a data scientist when he was at North Shore. He's now at Providence. And um, Tom French, an old colleague of mine from um, Intermountain has been at Providence for a number of years. And I really like what they're doing with data. They're, they're, they're taking advantage of the data they have without over hyping what they can do. And they're being very creative about it. And they did a really good job responding to Providence or to uh, um, COVID at Providence. Um, there's another, this is, is kind of an odd one, but I, I really have a lot of respect for what they're doing in Alberta at Alberta Health Services, um, they have been ahead of the game in analytics for a number of years, um, and so they're a good role model to watch. And they're pretty public about what they do as well. Um, and I, I also like Sharp Healthcare. You know, Sharp is going through some pretty interesting things. They're showing a lot of innovation. Um, Ascension is showing a lot of you know, important vital signs of innovation. Uh, both Sharp and Ascension are kind of early, so I'm not quite sure how that's going to all turn out. But all the vital signs look good for them to do some pretty impressive things with data.
1: Yeah, those are those are great examples, and I, I just like to talk about the examples sometimes because it's always nice when you know someone is doing it right. And then, and if you have a contact there, you know you can always reach out to a peer or someone and 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 kind of learn. From their lessons. That's what's great, right, about healthcare is we've all been very friendly with one another, and we everyone yeah. helps one another out. And because at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing and save people's lives, increase the quality of care, and those sort of things. So, in, in healthcare, anyways, I don't know about other industries. There's this great network of, of leaders willing to share, yeah. you know, all the hard lessons learned and and all the 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 great things that you can do to ensure success. Yeah.
0: So. I might we let me talk. mention one other thing before yeah. I me, what I like about Alberta and, and by the, the chief analytics officer up there, by the way, is Stafford Dean. Um, what I really like about Alberta too, is there's not this big distinction between public health and population health. Yeah, like it's Alberta Health Services has accountability for infectious disease and chronic disease. So you don't see this really distinct, bright line between public health and, and population health that you see in uh, the US. So yeah,
1: yeah. I was going to ask you about that, actually, Dale, because I know that you were a recent guest of a colleague of ours, uh, Bill Russell, on, on This Week with Healthcare IT, and you talked about that separation. And I never thought about it before, that truly in our country, in the United States, it is two different things, uh, or we operate it as two different things. But if we took advantage, like apparently Alberta does, of uh, bringing the two together... So how might a hospital, so, uh, you know, someone listening, a CDO is listening or a, someone, a leader in analytics listening, how might a hospital reach out and work with public health? Have you ever thought about that and how they might work together to solve problems? Maybe uh, it won't be national, but maybe in their
0: region. Well, there's probably a role model, you know, to follow in the US based on the way I've watched the international community operate in this space. like. I, you know, when I got to work in the Cayman Islands, for example, I got exposed to the World Health Organization, Pan American Health Organization, and what I saw there, and what we had in the Cayman Islands, is the the head of public health for the country sat on the executive team uh, of the healthcare delivery system. Hmm. So they were just a normal part of our uh, of our executive team in the healthcare delivery system. There was not this separate relationship. And of course the data that we were collecting and there's a, there was a, I would say a congruent data strategy between the two worlds, right? We were always collecting data that the head of public health needed and vice versa. He was leveraging data that we were collecting. Um, and I've seen that in a lot of countries, right? Where there's a representative on the healthcare delivery systems, executive team that's purposely, uh, responsible for managing the, the public health issues. That we traditionally only associate with infectious disease. Um, yeah. You know, there's a couple of states I think that are doing pretty well with this head. Like um, I think California does a pretty good job, Massachusetts, um, Oregon, Colorado actually are our common roots. They do a pretty good job of operating together as one. But, yeah. you know, it's still, I mean, the fact that, you know, CDC is so separate from. The rest of the world was, you know, the data world and the healthcare delivery world that became very evident, right, in COVID.
1: Yeah, I think that was definitely one of the big lessons of COVID: how uh, the importance of public health uh, and that we need to be more coordinated with public health. I know in the state of Texas, we we tried as well. We we, there's a Texas Health Services Authority, which I had the honor to serve as the board person for that for about eight, eight years. But we did the same thing on our board where we're were uh, officials, state government officials that were responsible for sort of public health for the state. And then we had representation from other uh, parts of the health ecosystem. And one of the goals was to make sure that everything that we did was in lockstep. But it, it's tough for, for many reasons, you know, the way our society is, is organized when it comes to healthcare. So uh, maybe a final question for you is, Dale, knowing everything you know about data and your your service with IMO and certainly Health Catalyst, and again your your long list of history of being CIO, many different organizations and and the military, is if you were now the CEO, so you're in your city and there's an opening for CEO, the board comes to you and says, Dale, we know you're having fun, um, but we want you to be our CEO. What what are one or two things that you would do? Now going back with the focus on data, obviously there would be other things beyond data that you'd focus on. But what would be some of the things that you would look at? Uh, and you uh, like you you'd have a meeting, let's just say with hmm. your executive over data. What what were you know, what are two things that you would look at or ask about?
0: Wow, that's an interesting question, Fred. Um, well. I would I'd probably do what I just suggested, right? And I would put someone on my executive team that was an epidemiologist, and their their mission in life was to make sure that the distinction between public health and population health is not nearly as distinct as what it has been in the past. Yeah. Um I would work really hard to, and this is something you'd have to sort of work nationally to effect, but I'm a firm believer that the quality measure strategy that we're following in the country right now is fundamentally flawed. And there's a couple of recent papers that came out from very noteworthy people like Don Berwick that would agree with that. The National Quality Forum hasn't lived up to what we thought it would when we put it in place 20 years ago. So um, that's more of an external thing, but if I were a hospital CEO, I would be leveraging my position of influence at Intermountain, for example, to change the way quality measures um, are implemented in the country right now, because they're really not helping. They haven't changed the cost quality curve. Right. And they're burning clinicians out. They're yeah. stripping their autonomy, right? We're collecting yeah. data that turned out, you know, had no value in COVID. In fact, right, we suspended all the quality measures data collection, because it was doing nothing to help yeah. with COVID, right? Yeah. So that's one thing I would make Pricing transparent, I would make it real and transparent for the public. Um, and that would include bundled pricing for, you know, all, you know, the 80-20 procedures that most people need in the hospital. Simplify the billing. Yeah. Um, no.
1: Yeah. No I, no, I love that. Those those are great. I, <laughs> there's uh, a lot of key takeaways from, from, t- from our talk. And, Dale, I always like to end by seeing if there's any other thing that you want to share with us. Some, uh, whether it's uh, doubling down on a previous statement or maybe something we didn't cover that you think might be important, I want to give you the
0: last word. Um, I'll circle back to a thought that, that was kind of bubbling around my head. You asked me about sort of personal life things and all that, and um, this is more for the younger crowd probably. I wish I would have um, trusted my instincts earlier in my career. And I think you'll probably appreciate this too. Once you get enough experiences behind you and enough years behind you, you develop pattern recognition and you can make decisions with confidence, I think, better and faster than you could have when you were younger. Um, And that's one thing I love about being where I am in life right now. But I think most people probably have stacked up enough pattern recognition by the time they're in their 40s that they ought to trust their instincts and their decisions and not let other people talk them out of it. Uh, yeah. Even if you can't explain it, trust those instincts and listen to that, listen to your conscience, listen to those patterns. Um, and maybe one other thought, the, this is another kind of a young folks comment. Um, early in my life, I came from a very humble upbringing. Like I was the first person to graduate from college from, in my extended family um, and I went to a very tiny little liberal arts school in Durango, Colorado. Then I went into the Air Force, and I'm around Air Force officers that had really deep pedigrees academically and were a lot more worldly than I was from my rural upbringing in Durango. And for a number of years, I was insecure about that and to the point that I would actually try to hide it and try to keep, you know, I would, I would try to keep it sort of subdued. And it took me years to get over that insecurity. And um, the lesson that I brought forward about that is just be super comfortable about the truth in yourself. Be super comfortable about expressing the truth as you see it in a situation. And like I tell people, there's a lot of peace in the truth. And um, so find the truth, tell the truth and face the truth is kind of my life motto. It's about myself but also it kind of reflects on data too. finding the truth in data and, and yeah. telling the truth as you see it in data and then helping people face the truth. So that's, that's the last thing.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. What a way to end this episode, Dale, uh, just, I could sit here and talk to you all day long. I, I learned a lot myself. I think I wrote down eight or to eight to 10 key points, looking at my cheat sheet here. And it's, it's been as fascinating as I anticipate anticipated it to be. So, Bale, thank you for being our guest, and that concludes this episode.
0: Thanks, Ed. Hi, this is John Lynn from the Healthcare IT Today podcast. If you like the latest rumors, insights, and happenings in healthcare IT, you'll enjoy hearing my colleague Colin Hung and myself debate and share the latest happenings from the world of healthcare IT. Find the latest episodes or dig into our archive at healthcareittoday.com. Or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcast application or YouTube. When it comes to healthcare technology, we love this stuff. And we can't wait to have you join in on the discussion of everything health IT. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.